Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Hi there, folks. I'm Amy Wright. Thanks for joining me today on Insights. I couldn't be more excited about today's show. Rodney Crowell stopped by to chat with me about his upcoming album, Triage, which is set to release just over a month from now. About two years ago, Crowell began scribbling the first few lines that would become the songs for Triage, with monotheism, climate change, and cultural divide foremost on his mind. His primary goal with the songs was to adequately frame the healing power of universal love. He says that he's learned from the experience that writing and recording songs with the desire to make a difference is a tricky business. Steering clear of self-importance while at the same time believing deeply in what you have to say calls for striking a near-perfect balance. I wanted to learn more about that balance, about his life and his new album, and this is what I turned up. So take a listen, and I hope you enjoy it. You're listening to Insights by Diddy TV. Rodney, welcome to Diddy TV. Thanks for stopping by to talk about your new album, Triage. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I really didn't know where to start with you because when I looked up and I was reading all about your amazing accomplishments, you know, Grammys, Lifetime Achievement Award for Songwriting, Nashville Songwriter Hall of Fame. Uh, there's just so much to uh, to talk about there. But I thought we would go back and talk for a few minutes about how you got started in music and what that's like. There's a lot of aspiring music musicians out there, and it's fun for them to hear about how you got started. So, so you grew up in Houston, and um, did you have mu- musicians in your family? My father, yeah, my father was a uh, a Hank Williams uh, devotee wannabe. Uh, he was a local country and western singing star. <laughs> In uh, on the east side of Houston, which is the working class side of Houston, where all of the uh, the places for uh, hillbilly music to be played were, and uh, but he was my father was a bit of of a savant. It's it's no wonder that I'm a songwriter. He didn't write songs, but he could hear a song once or twice and and have it and memorize it and have it down. So I grew up in a house full of songs. What was your first instrument that you played? Drums. Drums. My father, my father came home on a Tuesday with a real cheap set of pawn shop drums. Got a kitchen chair and and a couple of phone books, and I was I was eleven, and showed me a little bit about how to play. And then on Friday night, I was playing in a honky tonk with in my dad's band. Holding down the rhythm? <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. It was, uh, you know, I was far from capable of pulling that off. But you know, he, I guess he had the thought that, well, if you're back there, I don't have to pay it, you know, an extra five dollars to a drummer. And 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 he'd say, look, if you get lost, just look at my foot and try to match up what you're doing with my foot. And that's how we worked it for until I more or less got a feel for it, but. I never conquered that gig. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so when you were a kid, was it all about music, or were you playing sports and doing other things? You know, and uh, other other hobbies. 
Yeah, when I was young and little leaguer, I was a, a, a baseball player and a good one, you know. But, you know, in a few years, all those kids that I could dominate throwing a baseball when I was 12 grew to be athletes as I was growing to be a musician. And, you know, my uh, athletic prowess waned rather quickly once I hit high school. So when did you pick up guitar? Mm. Oh, along about the time the Beatles came out, you know, and, and I got one glimpse of, of how the girls reacted to guys with guitars. And I said, hmm, okay, I want that. So I got a guitar and, and learned how to play and uh, started learning songs. And But, but you know, all along I was listening very closely to Hank Williams' records and, and all the songs my dad knew. So by the time, you know, at age 13 when girls became so, you know, something to uh, aspire to... Uh, hold your own with <laughs> guitar helped you know in the early 60s of course of course it helps it helps still today i think if you can play a nice song and uh kind of woo yeah. woo a woman yeah, it's, yeah it, it can be a shortcut <laughs> so were you playing in bands in high school then as well i had a i had a, a band and uh uh, actually, I, I you know actually I, I I didn't exactly run away from home, but I left home to join a band at age fifteen, about in a little a small town about thirty miles from where I lived with my parents, and I slept on a couch and changed schools and and played in a band and uh, and we were a working outfit, you know all of the spending money that I had I made playing music. We play for teen teenage dances and you know VFW hall and things like that. Were you writing any music when you were in high school? Uh, I wrote a song. You know, when it came time to graduate from high school, there was a you know they picked a class song and and I knew that was going to happen. So I went home the the night before and wrote this really really inane bit of gibberish and took it took a guitar to school the next day and played it and, get, and it got voted the class song you know from my graduating class oh do you still remember the song do you still remember it oh no <laughs> thank heavens but but 20 i i finally went back to a reunion 25 years later and uh a uh some of the kids you know where well, they were grown people by then they said well you're gonna play our class song and i said no. <laughs> and luckily, the, the crowd split apart. I, I had some notoriety by then, and the, the crowds split apart. And the home ec teacher, long-retired home ec teacher, Miss Henson, came in, and she said, Good. That song was no good then, and it wouldn't be any good now. And I said, <laughs> I love you. Come here. You're, I'm with you. <laughs> she, knew, she knew the truth back then. Oh, that's great. It was really a bad song. I'm glad I've forgotten it. I know it, but I'm glad I've forgotten it. <laughs> well, what was the first song that you wrote that you thought, hey, this is a pretty good song? Do you remember? 
Well, I wrote some songs that I thought were pretty good songs until I arrived in Nashville and and, and got up close to some really well-written songs. So that doesn't count. But uh, I had a, a situation happening where I was in a recording studio and, and the great Towns Van Zandt uh, comment, you know, he uh, seduced my girlfriend unbeknownst to me while I was uh, recording some songs with a friend. So out of frustration and anger and humiliation, I wrote this song called You Can't Keep Me Here in Tennessee. And I had an afternoon gig at a at a steakhouse and, and the rules were if you played a, an original song, you get fired. So I was frustrated and angry and so I said, well, I, I'm going to play this new song I just wrote called You Can't Keep Me Here in Tennessee. Like, I'm out of here. Well, lo and behold, the, my boss comes down, the, you know, comes up to the stage and says, uh, look, I told you, you know, original song, you're going to be fired. You're fired. And there was a gentleman who had followed him and said, oh, well, good, because my boss wants to record that song tomorrow. And it was Jerry Reed. And it Jerry Reed was his boss, and and the very next day I was down at RCA Studio A, teaching the song to Chet Atkins and all those musicians. So I went from broken-hearted, you know, past the hat, nobody to a professional songwriter in, in less than twenty-four hours. So would you say that the move to Nashville was really pivotal, just in your life and your career, just being around all those musicians and studios? Of course, yeah. Yeah, soon after I arrived, I fell in, you know, in step with with a group of songwriters that, and mainly became good friends with Guy Clark, who was a, a good bit older than me, and which, which is how I first met your Memphis boy, Keith Sykes. It, I met, through Guy Clark, I met Keith. We've been, you know, longtime friends, and I just started hanging out in, in songwriting circles where there was some pretty uh, established and astonishing songwriters. So I learned, I guess I was a pretty quick study because I learned pretty fast and started, you know, coming up with material that worked. Well, I noticed that you collaborated a lot throughout your career with artists of many, many, many artists that you've collaborated with, but what, what have those collaborations um, meant to you? Well, you know, usually if it's a, if it's a fruitful collaboration, uh, it's, it's education. It's, it's experience. Uh, when I, I went to California and joined Emmy Lou Harris's hot band in the mid-70s, and at that particular time, half of that band was splitting their time with Elvis Presley and then coming to play with Emmy Lou and I. And so there's there's these veterans, you know, who are, you know, reading charts, you know, with Elvis Presley night after night. And, and to be around them, I started to learn about how to arrange songs and especially to arrange them quickly enough to keep a recording session going on. So that kind of collaboration was just money in the bank, really, because once you've kind of got a hang for it, you can pull it out whenever you need it. Did you feel like you were learning 
but also becoming a songwriter yourself? I mean, when was that moment when you said, I'm a performer, I'm a songwriter, this is, you know, I'm there? Well, I felt like a songwriter the, the day after I got fired from my, <laughs> after, my afternoon gig, sitting with Chet Atkins, you know, and teaching him a song that I'd written. I felt like a songwriter. But I would say it, it's, and, you know, when Amy Lou Harris started recording my songs, a lot of people followed her. She drew attention to, to my songwriting in a, in a big way. And then I re- then there was a time in, at the Palomino Club in in North Hollywood in California. Willie Nelson was playing, and I went down to see him. And unbeknownst to me, he had learned my song till I gained control again and called me up on stage to sing it with him. And as I was floating through the audience trying to get up there, I remember thinking, "Okay, you know, I've just been knighted by a master. I think I've found my place in the world." And I've never looked back. So, 1988, you put out uh, Diamonds in Dirt, produced five number one hits. Uh, you were writing them for yourself. You were performing. And, um, but you also write, you've written number one hits for other artists. Does it feel the same when it's a song you've written for yourself or a number one song that you've written for another artist? Well, when you write them for yourself, all of a sudden your life gets really busy and complicated and marriages dissolve and, and uh, you know, reality comes, you know, rolling in. Yeah, it was easier when I was just writing songs for other people. Or I never wrote songs for other people, honestly. I just wrote songs to write that particular song and try to keep the focus on making that song as good as it could be. And when I succeeded, other people would do it. When I became the uh, the artist who was delivering the hit, it really got more complicated. And and one of the and I became more self conscious. Like you know, you walk into a room when you got a few hit records, and people would look at you in a certain way. And if you're not careful, you start trying to present yourself like. You think these people are looking at you like, oh, that's that that guy. And so then I started, well, I guess I better be that guy. That wasn't very healthy for me. Uh, it it seemed like if, if I really bit into that, uh, the, the songs and, and, and the ability to, to make art for a long time, I, I, I sensed that, it would su- that I, I would suffer from it. And I'm more or less wiggled out of it you know it took me a minute but i kind of woke up a few years later uh high and dry with you know it's like well that that particular time in my career has come and gone so what am i going to do now and that's when i started doing really good work i think once once that was over and i just dedicated myself to starting with the houston kid just to making records that i want to make for me with no thought for anything else other than try to make it as good as I can and see what happens. So in general, with a with a career in music and for you, where was that balance between one's personal life and professional life? Because, you know, music can be all-consuming, and how did you find that balance? I don't know that I have. <laughs> <laughs> really. Well, you know, I had, I had four daughters, 
you know, and, and for a while there I was a single father. And uh, I, in the 90s, I, I took five years away from the hustle and bustle and, and uh, took my kids to school. And, you know, uh, their mother had moved to New York and we were sharing custody. And so life. And I was also building a new marriage with, with my wife, Claudia, who, who I've been with for a good long while now. And I'll just stayed at home and it was great it was good for me because my batteries got recharged I started writing some really good songs and that's when I made the Houston kid when I came out of that uh, time of just quiet reflection and driving my kids to school and seeing if I could help cook dinner now and again it was a good time for me and since then it's been busy 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 well, one of the things that struck me is that you were around when country was maybe different in, this, in the 70s, and then you moved forward into the 90s, country music changed. Um, how, how did that affect your songwriting when you sort of see these shifts in the music from stylistically? It doesn't affect my songwriting. I learned, I learned early on that there's only one reason to write a song, and that's to write the song for what it can be, the best song that it can be. Any, any other consideration, from my perspective, any other consideration for a song other than letting it tell me what it wants to be? And if I'm patient enough, a good song will tell me what it wants to be, and I know how to listen for it. But if I start trying to make something out of an idea that I have for a specific genre or goal or something like that I, I fail every time it it doesn't work that way for me and, and I've been comfortable with that for a long time it's like you're not going to call me up and say hey would you write a song for so and so you know we need it next Tuesday I just said no thank you I can't do it because I wouldn't be able to do it but I can I can mess around here and something can happen and a song will come to me and I can write it pretty quickly and I can write it well, and that's what I trade in. Do songs come quickly to you in general, and or are there some that you work on and work on and work on? I've worked on songs 30 years. I'm not kidding about that. There's, there's a song on, uh, on uh, my album, Three Back, that was certainly 17 years it took to write. Uh, and then there's one on, a, on an album before that was that was actually 30 years in the making. And I finally, the right thing happened at the right time, and I understood what the last verse needed to be. And I will tell you this, one of my biggest songs of all time, uh, Shame on the Moon, which Bob Seger recorded. I started that in 1979. He, he recorded a version of it that was a hit in 1983, and I rewrote it entirely in 2018. So uh, I wasn't, I was never satisfied with it. And I've rewritten it, and the rewrite's okay. <laughs> so you're so, still working on it. <laughs> I'm still working on it. That's right. <laughs> let's let's talk about your new album. Let's talk about triage. And um, okay. so I was I was struck by the lyrics and and the meaning of a number of the songs. 
and you were very honest about the meaning, I think, of a lot of the songs. But are any of the the last year's last few years' events and upheaval that's been going on politically, socially, are are some of those things reflected in this new album? Absolutely. Uh, climate change is very much at the root of of my angst and my dissatisfaction and and my spiritual longing. It's uh, I think human mankind has treated this beautiful planet that's uh, made itself available to us in all kind of ways to sustain life. We treat it like an old pair of shoes. And that breaks my heart. And somewhere in the writing of all these songs, there's that sorrow and I'm trying, and and I was working to give expression to that sorrow in a very grounded way, and not any kind of wistful, we've done ourselves wrong way, but in a way where I could own my own contributions to it in my own way, because you know I, I'm as I drive a car around, you know, it, you know, I the big oil companies, you know that told the big lie a long time ago, you know, they, they were in it to make money and, I, and I've been giving them mine, so I'm in cahoots with them. So I, I have to change myself first. And in recent years, uh, I've been changing. And triage, I think, reflects the changes that have gone on inside of me. And, and as I've gotten older, as a younger man, I, I wanted to take what was out there in the world and bring it in here and then give it back to you. And as I've gotten older, I just want to identify what's in here and offer it to the world. You know, whatever little piece of the world that I attract to, to what I do, uh, I'm not deluded into thinking that hordes are going to come riding in to see what I have to say. But a few people do, and they're loyal. And so those loyal people deserve the very best of what I can give. And that's what I, that was the central theme in making triage. When it seems like the last year, we've sort of proven that, that when forced to, people can take a step back and really do amazing things for the planet when they're driving less and, and, you know, staying at home more or riding their bikes or whatever else they're doing that, that, uh, that, that help help the planet. What would you suggest to people that they could do themselves to make a small part in that climate change? Well, you could start by recycling. But recycling would really is would just really make barely a dent. And even switching over to electric cars, um, it would help, but it would it only make a dent. It, it's what people don't realize is that that big agriculture, you know, raising beef is is contributes it puts as much carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. I mean I mean it, it, far more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere than, than even automobiles. And uh building materials and the the way they're made put it put carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. 
but probably more than anything is just to be, to be aware it would seem like you know it if a, you know herd immunity we've all heard about herd immunity what if what if we had a herd mentality where we all said hey you know look the, the, these plants growing outside my window here that I can look out they're green they're helping us breathe and this this earth is get you know will grow food for us until forever you know it's kind of it could be kind of hippy dippy but it's a long standing truth that this planet has been sustaining it tried for a long time to sustain you know dinosaurs gave it a good go years and years and years seems like the creator said well you know this this experiment is not working we'll wipe this out and start over and see see what i can do with humans so we got a way to go to pr to prove if if we can make a better show of ourselves than the dinosaurs did i'm hopeful and optimistic that we can i'm optimistic as well and it, it's uh, your passion i share that passion with you so uh hopefully we'll keep our fingers crossed that some of these things can can um provide that change where did you where did you uh, record the album and who produced it? Dan Nobler produced it, and and his studio is is you know a, a short drive from my. He has a studio in his house, and he's actually my son-in-law, and uh, he stole most of my gear from from my studio and, and installed it in his his studio and. Good news is I get to visit my daughter when I go work. But now, you know, it's it's not nepotism. My son-in-law, you know, he came through the Clive Davis School of Record Production at NYU. He grew up on the Upper West Side of New York City, had built his own studio in his, uh, in his parents' apartment when he was 12, 13 years old. So he's it's been in his blood for a long time. Very creative, you know, old enough to be my son, I'm young enough to be my son-in-law, but will stand up to me, you know, as a worthy adversary when I'm headed down the wrong path, he'll stand in front of me and say, hey man, hang on, back up. I respect that. So what did he bring to the process of producing triage? Youthful enthusiasm and, and a world full of knowledge. Uh, a belief in, in what I do, uh, a belief, a, a sincere belief in the lyrical content that I work really hard to bring to bear, and uh, respectful of the melodies that I come up with too. I think he he feels it, it's creative, and uh, all which all adds up to support. It's a supportive producing is a supportive role. But if you do it right, you can, you can lead <laughs> the parade. <laughs> so who are some of the other musicians on the album, and what did they bring to the overall sound and bringing forth that, that sound that you wanted to create? Well, I had, uh, for the first sessions, the title track, let's take the title track, Triage, um, which I wrote really for a friend of mine, Joe Henry, a songwriter, poet, producer. 
who was going through a rough patch uh, with his with his health. And I wrote this song for him. And so the band that we pulled together with an, an old friend of mine who I recorded with back in in the early '90s, Larry Klein, who's a master bass player and a producer from Los Angeles. He was married to Joni Mitchell for for a good long while. My very dear friend from who lives near near outside of Boston, Stuart Smith, who is the guitar player in the Eagles for the last 18 years. And uh, oh, the, this piano player who lives part-time in, in Toronto and part-time in Miami named John Jarvis and, and a drummer named Jerry Rowe, who's here in Nashville. We all got together and we get to the instrumental section of triage, which and suddenly Stuart starts playing and Larry, Larry Klein is playing this bass part, and I think, oh, it can't get any better than this. And then it segues into this piano solo by John Jarvis that is just, was just so beautiful. I was knocked out by it. I did, I, it wasn't anything that I was expecting to happen, but when I heard that music, I said, oh, this is it. This is exactly why we do this. This is a gift from heaven. And, uh, that kind of thing would happen in the studio and and that's what it's so much fun when that happens it's 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 like playing hide and seek you know when you were a kid and finding somebody who was hidden really well and beating them back to the base it's it's it brings back that kind of enthusiasm or delight when something really cool happens when you're recording do you that answer the question? Yeah, that that does. When you when you arrange a song, are you when you work with other musicians, do you let them just do their thing and you watch it come to life, or do you arrange it more for them? I'll suggest things. Um, I'll, I'll, there'll be certain things that that's part of the composition that I'll make sure that everybody understands what I'm getting at and what it should feel like, perhaps even what it should sound like. And then we go from there and they can, I mean, once they, if, if I have an idea that I think really works and if someone is in collaboration is kind enough to help me get there to where I go, see that, okay, there's that. All right, let's give it another go and see what what else can happen see if if that's the the jumping off place where we get to something else and i'm always open to that but most of the musicians i work with all of the musicians i work with are willing to help me track down all of the musical ideas that i have first and then we can move on from there so let's talk about the meaning of a few of the songs on the album you can sort of Take us through a few here. Uh, Don't leave me now. What is the meaning of don't leave me now? That's a prayer. That's a prayer. Yeah, I told a lie. You know, lo and behold, and, and you know, as, a, as an adult male who thought I'd outgrown all of that, I actually told a lie. And I knew I was going to get busted for it, or I thought I was going to get busted for it, but I didn't. And... And in the time when I was waiting 
to to really be called out on this and and it wasn't I wasn't cheating on my wife it wasn't that kind of thing but it was it was something that would be I stepped out of bounds and I never got called out on it but in that fearful place while I was waiting to be called out on it I wrote don't leave me now which was basically a prayer to myself which is look whatever is really good in there about me you got to come back now i got to reclaim you know that true north you know in my soul because i stoop low enough to tell a freaking lie got a song out of it and i've and i've lived through it and i've forgiven myself and never had to be confronted <laughs> i think a lot of people can relate to that there's that moment when you do something that that you know was wrong and you just did it and uh and like you said, you're now you're hoping you don't get caught, and it's very stressful. <laughs> but um, but uh, but yeah, I think a lot of people can relate to that. How about something has to change? Hmm, something has to change is basically uh, was born out of what we were talking about earlier. In the really at the center of of when I first started working on that piece of music and what became that song. It started out, you know, from my fear and anger about the climate and and what what we we are how far we've taken it without really addressing it, and basically the line something has to change. That's what I'm saying. But but I, I to me, topical songs. If 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 you go and and you you start doing topical songs and you put you state it in such a way where you can the time and the date is built into the song well then your timelessness you've just forfeited your timelessness so i worked on that song in a way where i could say the things i had to say about uh in economic inequality not just not just from the uh ghetto but but also from the part of the side of town that i grew up and there's there's economic imbalance in the form of kids you know wiping windshields in the freezing snow you know for change and that kind of thing and that's just that's where the song came from something has to change that's my feeling what about hymn number 43? Yeah, well, John Leventhal is my uh, husband-in-law. I, I, my second wife, uh, I introduced the two of them, and they've had a glorious and beautiful marriage, and, and I love them both. And uh, I called John up and I said, hey, you know, I'm working on this record, and, and you got any melodies that you want some words written to? I, I'm I need something that wouldn't be one of my melodies. And he said, hey, and he says, I've been working on hymns. I'm interested in hymns. I said, well, send me something. So he sent me a guitar demo of, of the melody and, and the chord changes, and it was all there musically. So I wrote the words to his composition, sent it back to, and I recorded it and sent it back to him, and then he put everything else on it, including... Uh, Roseanne Cash and their son, 
Jake Leventhal, who's a really fine singer, really talented young man. So that's how that came to be. And it's called hymn number 43 because it's it started as a hymn. And, and from my perspective, I, w- I was trying to write, or not trying, I was writing from the point of view of I'm not really a Christian. I certainly, I'm, and I'm not really God-fearing, but I, but I, but I have a God that I relate to with passion and with faith. So I was, I was trying to to uh, express that particular sensibility, which is, you know, maybe maybe someday it'll hit me, and, and I'll I'll have that epiphany that. I've heard Christians have where they're saved forever. It hasn't happened yet. I'm not saying it will, and I'm not saying won't. But I, in song, I was willing to entertain the idea that it might. Did you grow up in the church? Sure. Yeah, my mother. Yeah, my mother's from Paris, Tennessee. Grew up in uh, Pentecostal. My mother was speaking tongues. She could rattle it off. <laughs> she, you know, she could. Sp- she could speak in church like a really great drummer, like a Gene Krupa with words. And she could bring it. And I grew up in that. And, you know, at a, from a young age, I thought, well, this is a, they're really putting on a great show here, but I don't buy into all of this. <laughs> and that's how I, I grew. I grew away from, from my mother's uh, beliefs. Well, as a Southerner, I think most of us grow up to some degree in the church, and then then there's a complicated relationship <laughs> with the church yeah. after that. But um, the music's so good, though. The music is the music is incredible. The music is incredible, yes. and a lot of us learn to sing in the church. Mm-hmm. Harmonies. I mean, me personally, yeah. I love to sing, but it's I learned my harmonies from having to sing the alto part at church yeah. because I had a low yeah. voice. <laughs> They're like, you can't yeah. sing the top, the top bit. You got to sing the bottom bit over there. <laughs> um, and I will say that, you know, I've always thought that my best songs like till I gain control again, or, you know, please remember me or, or my popular songs in, in one way or another, they all strike me. The good ones all strike me as some sort of prayer. In a, in a way, and I think triage, the song Triage is a prayer. Certainly, Here Goes Nothing is a prayer. Uh, Don't Leave Me Now is a prayer. Something Has to Change is a prayer. One Little Bird is a prayer. What's, so, that, what's yeah, that about? What's, what is One Little Sorry. Bird about? One Little Bird is about on, on this hilltop where I live and the forest that surrounds me in, in 2019, I couldn't find any birds. In the late summer, the, there were no birds around, and usually have birds. So I stomped around in the woods looking for birds. I couldn't find any, and, and so I was in a funk about, you know, climate change, and you know, the birds are gone. But I was sitting out on the back, you know, deck back there, and, and a, a little Carolina wren landed in the tree right out here and started singing to me. Birds certainly seemed to be looking at me. And uh, so I listened closely to her melody and said, well, I'm going to write her song here. And that's what happened. I, I, wrote, I wrote a song, but, you know, I, the whole time I was, I was saying, I'm writing her song. 
I, she just showed me what she wanted me to sing about all these birds being gone. And that's how I got the song. I was really struck by those lyrics because over the last year, like a lot of people, I was, you know, holed up and um, not able to go anywhere, really. And I was watching the same view out my window every single day. And it was the middle of the winter and there are no leaves on the trees. And out of nowhere comes this red bird. And it was such a stark contrast to a blue sky, no leaves on a tree, and a red bird. And I thought, oh, we've got hope here. Yeah. The, the, yeah, bir the birds are here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the birds, bringer of good tidings. Bringer of good tidings. And uh, listen, uh, Triage is an amazing album. I hope everyone goes out and picks it up and listens to it and reads the lyrics because the lyrics are uh, really poignant. And like you said, a lot of them are like a prayer. And we wish you the best of the luck with the album and um, hope you come see us in Memphis sometime. I do too. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you and, and stay healthy and all the best to you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Rodney Crowell. Be sure to check out his new full-length studio album, Triage. You can visit RodneyCrowell.com to learn more. And as always, don't forget to visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive, on-demand content and to download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.